Today's episode was recorded in April from the safety of our homes. Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couched. Today we are discussing immigration, family separation, and human rights. We are delighted to welcome two inspiring guests, Dr. Spiros D. Orfanos and Ellen Gusenberg-Kent. Dr. Spiros D. Orfanos, a psychologist and psychoanalyst, is the director of the New York University Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis and the former clinic director. He's also past president of the International Association of Relational Psychotherapy and the Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. He's also founder of the Immigration and Human Rights Group at the NYU Postdoctoral Program in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. Director-producer Ellen Gusenberg-Kent is an Oscar and Emmy Award-winning filmmaker whose documentaries have been widely praised for their humanity and unflinching honesty. Her most recent film, which we're talking about today, Torn Apart, Separated at the Border, is currently streaming on all of HBO's platforms. Crisis Hotline, Veterans Press One, won the 2015 Academy Award for Best Documentary, Short Subject, and was part of a trilogy of films about the hidden wounds of war. We wanted to start by asking you each to just share a bit about how you came to this particular work with regard to issues of migration, immigration, and family separation. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Spiros, why don't you begin? Because I think that what you're doing is extraordinary, and I'm not aware of anyone else in the country who's doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, although I do think others are, and we might get to some of those others that are doing really wonderful, good work. And, you know, we're right now, today, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I can't help but know that one of the things that's going on is that there's some serious problems in how uh, migrant families and people that have come in seeking asylum have been basically detained in ICE centers, in ICE detention centers, where there are huge, very closed-in populations. And that also includes children who, instead of being sent as the law states, instead of being sent to social service agencies and childcare centers, foster homes and group homes, are now being detained uh, by ICE in their detention centers. And that was when we started the Immigration and Human Rights Work Group back in uh, early 2017, we didn't realize that we would wind up doing work with families and children that have been separated at the border. We created the, the work group immediately after Trump got elected, because it was very simple for some of us to see, to read the writing on the wall. Trump was a racist and a bigot, and he showed it in a number of ways. And some of us were frightened about what was coming down the pike. And even though psychoanalysts are not often good at predicting the future, this one was a slam dunk, unfortunately. 
I wish we hadn't been so correct. And we engaged in, uh, we organized the program and we started doing a lot of asylum work and asylum evaluations and we continue that and we've gone to immigration court and we continue that. So we've been doing a number of things with regard to undocumented immigrants and particularly families that have been separated at the border, which you know so much about because of your own work, Ellen, which I found when I first came across your film, I was I was blown away by it because it was such a an artist's presentation of what was going on in at the Mexican-US border. And it validated in a way what we were learning clinically at NYU and uh, elsewhere. And I'm so glad that we have artists side by side in working in this domain that I had never imagined we would be working before. Yeah. So what I thought was sort of ingenious about what you were doing, and then I'll circle back to my film and how we met, is that you were bringing together therapists and lawyers because when these separated families have their day in court, which takes a long, long time, and many of them never get to have, they have to make an asylum case. They have to prove their claim that they were forced to leave their country that their lives were in danger or their children's lives were in danger. And when people run away under pressure, they don't often think about taking documentation with them. And in fact, in a lot of these countries, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, the police are not helpful. They don't investigate crimes. They don't hold people accountable for any number of reasons. And so if you were to go into court without a lawyer or without somebody who had some sort of an understanding of the trauma you'd been through and what happened to you, it would be very hard to make a case that your life was in danger. You're absolutely right. When I started the film, I was drawn to the subject because I, I couldn't really wrap my head around a government that would separate parents from kids. I understand that when you criminalize an adult and you put them in prison, their kids can't be there. But I didn't understand why it was necessary to criminalize people who were just coming here seeking asylum. You know, there's, I guess, a long history of putting people in detention short term while we investigate what it is they're here for and are they legitimate and are they a danger to our country? But these people were clearly not any of that. And so for me, it was a complete education on how we treat immigrants in this country, why this was so different and particularly horrific, and the incredibly difficult process under any circumstances to gain asylum in America. It's not easy to do. And for these people, it was especially hard. There's a language barrier. A lot of them are poor and uneducated. And even those who are smart as a whip still don't know how our legal system works. Well, I think I've spoken to enough lawyers at this point to know that even the immigration attorneys don't know how immigration law works and how the immigration legal system works. I think that, I mean, maybe we, we could get into it. I had a long history of immigration in my family, a long history of, of family members being undocumented, all coming here, not because they were expecting to find gold in the streets, 
but because they were basically pushed out of their country, in, in my case, it was Greece, as was the situation with many, many other countries. I think that since the turn of the century, since mass migration, we've received immigrants, but we haven't really received them with the open arms of the Statue of Liberty, the way sometimes is portrayed mythologically. I think we closed our borders powerfully and dramatically in 1923, because we had too many immigrants, according to the authorities, and, and the authorities were really profoundly prejudicial against East European and Mediterranean peoples. We separate families often and a lot, and we separate children, and we pull children away from their families, and that gets lost in the dustbin of history, I think. I watched the documentary again this morning. It was almost like I could hear your thoughts in terms of the choices that you made when you would show us some aspect visually, without words. I particularly remember the moment when Vilma and her daughter, I believe, walk into the home where they're going to be temporarily housed by some folks who generously agree to do that. And the shock of walking into such a stately home. And it was, I think, maybe a three to five second moment where it spoke so loudly. And I so wanted then for somebody to acknowledge what an experience that would have been like for them, right? The overwhelm of that. But you said it without saying it. And that's just one of many examples of how I feel like your film and other films can work in a way that's different than language. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, you have a group of people who have been pretty systematically dehumanized, right? In a narrative about them. They're criminals. They're dangerous. They're taking our jobs. They're a threat to our culture. Just Mm -hmm. top to bottom. And this idea that I was reading some quotes from Stephen Miller, who is sort of Trump's architect of his immigration policy. And he talks about the countless Americans who have died, who would still be alive if our open border policies were not such as they are. The insidious danger to our culture, et cetera. For me, I couldn't even begin to get into that. The only thing I could think to do was to try to show a couple of these or some of these mothers and their children and to let them tell their own stories in their own words and to let the audience make up their own minds about whether or not these people were a danger and to be able to know. I mean, I can't imagine that anyone wouldn't do exactly what they chose to do if they were brave enough to do it because Mm -hmm. to stay where they were. In situations, you know, in one case, there was gang violence that took the life of the father of one of these kids. And in the other, there was a a father and husband who was extremely violent, would lock them out of the house, starve them, etc. And so it took just an immense amount of courage to make a decision to leave those situations and to leave you know, in Maria's case, her entire family behind and to come here and to sort of face the uncertainty of that journey and then to get here and to have their kids taken away and not given any information about them and then to have to try to find them and to know that their kids were terrorized. 
mm-hmm. and being punished for something that they did unknowingly. Because when these families came, it was er- relatively early on in the zero tolerance policy. And so I don't think any of them realized that they were liable to be criminally prosecuted. I think that they all thought, at least what they told me, was they were just going to present themselves to the American border officials and say, I'm here seeking asylum. I was in danger in my country, and I'd like to have an opportunity to apply for asylum. They didn't, none of them had a chance to do that because they were apprehended and locked up. So it felt really important to give them a voice. And uh, our government was doing everything possible to keep them from or to keep journalists or filmmakers from having any access to them. And I thought, you know, I'll be damned. Like, there's got to be a way to give them a chance to tell their stories. And so that's, that's what we wanted to do. Well, it seems to me that you did it, and you did it very well. There's a relatively recent term that's used a great deal in psychoanalytic circles, and that term is witnessing. Mm-hmm. And that the analyst witnesses the patient's story, the patient's trauma. And did you ever have a a feeling like that, that you were witnessing the stories of the two women and and the families? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that term was used a lot in Holocaust diaries. Yes, yes, that's right. If we don't know our history, we're bound to repeat it. And for people to be witnesses and to give testimony about this experience that was it was somehow necessary because there was a danger of forgetting and in this country there's always the danger of forgetting and so it felt really important to sort of document these experiences and to bear witness and i think one of the reasons that these moms came to trust me i was just doing my job by the way so i wasn't doing anything extraordinary but i went to the detention centers. In one case, I managed to get into a detention center by saying that I was a friend. So I was able to be there. And no one had visited this mother. She mm. could, her lawyers couldn't even get mm. there because it was so rural and far away that it was all but impossible for the lawyers to get there. So they would like have phone calls. In another case, I was there when she got out. I was there when she got her son back. And the fact that I was there for that I was simply filming, as, as I say, but it meant so much to them that there was somebody in America that cared and that came to see them and that wanted to see what they were going through. And even though none of them were activists, none of them imagined that they would be speaking up and telling their story or even telling their story in order to save other families from going through the same thing, they both came to realize that they had a larger role to play and that this was not only their personal history and family history, but it was a history of others just like them seeking the same kind of safety and freedom that they were and that they could speak for others. And so they began to embrace that role. They did not start there. They started with immense fear and we're not sure we want to be part of this documentary, but you were nice enough to come Let's start talking, and then let's see what's going to happen. Well, I I would think that it was in part not just them, but the kind of atmosphere uh, that and the kind of interest that and and empathy that you had that you brought to the work. You know, I'm struck by you were saying you were just doing your job, 
but it was some job. There was something about you being able to marshal enough art and filmmaking know-how to bring it to the public. I think that's, that's an achievement from my standpoint that is extremely important because, you know, you could have a wonderful film and nobody sees it, right? And I think that it's so important. Uh, uh, it's not lost on me that in 2019, it was on the top list of the uh, documentary films, human rights films for Physicians for Human Rights, for example. So these things are meaningful because they it spreads the word. And in that sense, to me, I don't know how you think about it. I'd be curious. But it has an advocacy quality to it. What were you hoping to achieve when you first started? Well, I'm going to answer that quickly, but I want to turn it back to what you do because I'm really interested in having a better understanding of trauma as it affects these families. I never set out to be an advocacy filmmaker. I don't see myself as one. I definitely believe, though, that I think I gravitate, like many filmmakers today, to subjects that need to be told or that I think people are, think they know. They already think they know the story, but there's really something much deeper to feel. And so the idea is to try to open up their hearts and allow them to feel something so that when they engage in these you know, political conversations, they have a touchstone. But I really want to talk about what you do as an analyst, because first of all, I can't even imagine waking up one day and saying, I want to be a psychoanalyst. <laughs> I mean, you have to have an immense amount of compassion and patience to want to listen. And I think the word trauma has now become a part of the vernacular, right? Yes. I'm curious how you kind of go about excavating that so that you can use it to help these people, not only to, to begin to make some sense of their lives and move forward with their kids, but also to be able to help them make their case. Well, the, of course, the, the forensic part of it, which has to do with making the case so that either a deportation doesn't happen or a family gets reunited, that's one side of the, the asylum work that we do with the attorneys. And then there's the, the treatment. I'm currently working with a young woman who's she's 17, and she has really been severely traumatized by what the U.S. government has done to her family and the tremendous uncertainty that she's under and the suspicion and the paranoia that that generates. And this is a young woman who has indeed been traumatized for the last seven some odd years uh, because she lives under fear. And the fear is well-founded in the sense of that it's not strictly some neurotic internal fear. The trauma starts early on because so many of the cases that we work on come from, from parts of the world that where persecution and violence is rampant, as is poverty. And so that's already, you're born in that environment, there's always a, there's a trauma right there, right? And then as a result of inadequate police, gangs, etc., people make the difficult decision to leave their country of origin and travel all the way 
across Latin America and uh, up Mexico to get to the U.S. border, which was already a second trauma, right? And then we traumatize them at the border, too. We often separate the families at the border, and mothers and children don't know when they will be reunited or how they will be reunited. In fact, they're often the customs and enforcement agencies are also threatening them that you'll never see your child again uh, if you don't cooperate with us. And then there are the lengthy separations that are going on. So all these are traumatic experiences. And they're traumatic experiences because they're unusual. They're not the typical kinds of difficulties that we have. They're not the typical miseries that families have, the typical difficulties of growing up. They become traumatic because they're extraordinary and problematic and severely tragic. And one of the things that contemporary psychoanalysis has understood very well is how deep these traumas go. That even if one is presumably saved from ice and things are quiet, because they're quiet, that doesn't mean that the child is not, or the adult is not traumatized. That in fact, the trauma goes underground. We have documentation now that traumas emerge years later in all kinds of complicated ways, not just through depression and anxiety, which often happens, and people think about that as sort of delayed reactions, post-traumatic stress disorder, but we also have uh, physiological problems, a range of autoimmune problems, uh, there's documentation for heart disease, etc. It seems like both you and Ellen enter people's lived experience and become part of that lived experience, either in those detention centers or in an analytic consulting room, and then help people turn those experiences into stories that they can tell, that bear witness to what they've felt or seen, and that those stories, when heard, create empathy, right? They create empathy for themselves sometimes, as in analysis, or empathy for the people who are subjects of the film, in the case of documentary filmmaking. And I guess we could go further and think about how that relates to activism, which is also part of what we're concerned about here on Couched, and say that that empathy then motivates people to be involved in activist causes to change things or to express something about their own suffering and, and master that. Right. So one hopes that you are reaching people who haven't thought about the subject in this way, right? And that you are able to open their eyes and ears to that. It's also, I think, immensely helpful and to some degree therapeutic. I shouldn't use that word carelessly, but to tell your story and to repeat it and to explain it and to have somebody care enough to ask the questions so that you can share your feelings and you don't just keep them in and your fears about your child or if you're a kid, your fears about what might happen in the future or what if they take my mother away again mm -hmm. or these other kinds of things that come up. So I think it empowers it can empower. I mean, for me, one of the things that I learned over the years in working with stories of young people in crisis, young people who were different, they were othered in their communities or crowds, was that the more verbal, the better they were able to communicate their traumas and difference and problems and say, 
I might look different, but I'm just like you in these ways, the better they were able to do. So rather than pity themselves, they were able to sort of stand up for themselves and be proud of who they are. And so that's something I always feel good about. I feel like, okay, maybe I'm empowering this kid because there's no doubt that these kids will enter into communities where they'll be teased because they're behind in school and they don't speak the language. And some of them don't even want to say that their mothers were in detention centers. Do you make reference to the idea of resiliency, really, and what helps people be resilient? And that's very important. I mean, historically, analysts were always interested in pathology. And I, I think in the last 20, 30 years, we've been much more interested in resiliency and how that plays out. And sort of a principle of trauma therapy 101 is create a story and tell your story. But often there's no one to hear your story. So you need someone encouraging you to tell your story to help you create your story and to get your story out. The story also has to be communicated to someone. And whether the story gets communicated to the interviewer or the therapist or the parent or the school teacher, I think that's one of the important components. That's why someone like Eli Wiesel was encouraging all Holocaust survivors, all survivors, not just the talented writers, but all survivors to write their story. Now, partly it was because he wanted the recorded documentation of it. But I think he was he himself was an extraordinary writer and could tell that this was important for people to do, that there was some kind of sort of uh, subtle self-healing that goes on by writing your story, even though, this, you know, people were not Hemingway or Toni Morrison. They could still tell their stories. So I think the expression and the it, it allows a certain kind of witnessing. And I have a question for you, Ellen, because I know... When I'm listening to the stories of asylum seekers and families that have been separated, that's a guarantee for me that I will not sleep that night. Even if I did the interviews, two-hour or three-hour interviews early in the morning, that night I will not sleep. So there's a kind of uh, what technically is referred to as a sort of a vicarious traumatization. I'm curious if you, in doing the film, had that kind of reaction at all. But did you have uh, yeah. mentally, emotionally, physically? You, I, you definitely have it. You did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I want to say something about the sort of saving graces of being a filmmaker as opposed to an advocate who works in the trenches all the time and every day. It's an immersive experience for me and my editor. We are, and even while we're filming, it's very intense and very difficult, but you really are focused on being a facilitator. So it's difficult while you're working on it, but then you move on to the next subject. So you're not living it 24 seven for years and years, but it's not the same as being a first responder and hearing these stories day in and day out over and over again. I think, I wish those people were engaged in the political process and could sit down with lawmakers and say, look, here's what's worked in the past. Here are things that were tried and not pursued. People don't have to stay in detention centers because somebody's afraid that they're going to flee the country. There are many other less radical things that you could do if you want to keep an eye on someone. And our country's pretty good at keeping an eye on people if they want to. 
our administration has said because of COVID now that they are going to halt all immigration from the border. Not just because of COVID, but also to protect American jobs. And honestly, the jobs that these folks are able to do are not jobs that most Americans would do. They don't get work permits for months and months and months. They are not in anybody's priority. And so they end up doing jobs that very few people would want for less money because they don't have citizenship and they have no recourse. I think that's a good point because there's not a single economist that is not telling us that we are desperate for a larger workforce and that immigrants, even the undocumented ones, help this economy tremendously. And right now, as we speak, as we're in the middle of this pandemic here in this country, so many of the people that are in the supermarkets and making the deliveries are the undocumented. What we need to to bring back, I think, what I would love to see in some kind of uh, activist way, we need to bring back to our common vocabulary words like resistance and defiance. And our immigrants, for whatever reason that they come to the U.S., they have a right to have human rights. In hearing you both talk, I'm thinking about how one gets to resistance or defiance when one is in a state, let's say, as someone striving to be an advocate, not just the people living the experiences, but also those of us who are striving to be activists and advocates, how one moves from that state of intense empathy, which can feel overwhelming. It can feel like it induces a state of paralysis or helplessness. How one moves from that place to the place of empowerment, to use your word, Ellen, or defiance, resistance, action. Something has to happen in between, internally. And I think you both have maybe thought about it, your own experience of doing that, and I would love to hear you speak to that. Well, I could say just how we have tried to do it at NYU. And we recognized what was going to be happening. That was one thing. You have to be able to identify, you have to be able to look and to hear and to see what's going on. So if you have a, a creeping totalitarian state, it's good to notice that early. But all, at the same time, you do what you, you know, to paraphrase the, the community activist Saul Alinsky, you do what you can with what you have. Mm-hmm. And I knew at NYU, I had a, a group of people that were, uh, had very progressive feelings. And I linked that with my own personal interest in immigration and human rights. And we decided to create a, a kind of an organizational entity and to provide training so that people could do forensic work, so that they could use all their psychoanalytic clinical skills and then add another piece to that. So we partnered first with the Immigrant Rights Clinic of the School of Law, and then we partnered with Physicians for Human Rights. So we we worked at networking with a bunch of people because you can't really be an activist. Uh, Well, you could be a solo activist, I suppose, but it doesn't work as well. Absolutely. Ellen, you were going to respond to the question? Well, you know, I was going to sort of summarize the difference between how Spiros operated and how other individuals might come to a place where they could go from being 
a storyteller or interested into somebody who wants to take action and is prepared to do that. So, you know, Spiros basically recognized that numbers would be powerful and that people have different expertise, but they were all kind of in the same fight, right? Everybody had the same kind of mission, which was to try to help these asylum seekers and immigrants realizing that they had a multiplicity of needs and that their needs had to be articulated by people who really understood them rather than just make a lot of noise about it, right? So so you put a coalition together, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, using a variety of models that you've seen work over the years. For, I think for individuals who care about an issue or maybe they're involved in an issue and they may be feeling overwhelmed because I've heard a lot about that. What can I do? It's so big, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there has to be a a sort of an inner transformation that you really, you have to, you know, using the word resilience, which I think is a good one. So you have to sort of find your strength within this overwhelmingly painful situation and say, I want to do something. I wish I could do something. I must do something. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to get to a place where you can't sit still. I guess I don't know from a psychoanalytic point of view what it takes to sort of go from A to B, but I know having met mothers whose children took their own lives, let's say, or, you know, something equally wrenching and traumatic. How do you get past the immense pain of that to say, I want to do something, you Mm -hmm. know, and then it becomes, what can I do? Right. The writer, Valeria Luiselli, who wrote on a similar topic, right? The Lost Children Archive about children at the border talked in the book, which was about a documentarian of the, she was documenting the documentarian in a sense, fictionally, but that it's important to depict the women who are victims as actually agents, that they're not, in fact, passive victims of suffering, that they are making choices, not because they're making so many choices, but because it's important for the children to take in that the parents weren't completely victimized because of what that does to the child's internal image of the parent and what that does to their image of themselves. And so there's something about the concept of agency which goes along with psychoanalyst emphasis on turning passive into active, especially for children after trauma. And it seems to me that both you, Spiros, and you, Ellen, are trying to help people go from being passive viewers or passive recipients of the news or passive people who identify with these people going through separations at the border and transform that experience into one where they feel like they can be actively agentic because they've empathized with the experience. And that's a profound contribution, I think, to society, what you're doing. Well, thank Thank you. you. And and thank you for that remark, uh, because I think helping people develop agency is profoundly liberating. And in the final analysis, pardon the pun, I think in the final analysis, it is about people's freedom. And freedom to express, freedom to live, freedom to enjoy themselves. Freedom to help. Freedom to help and freedom to be with the people that they love. Thank you. 
I just heard the word resistance and resilience together for the first time, like very closely. Hmm. Yeah. So perhaps on that note, we should say that we have to stop for today. I don't want to stop. No. <laughs> Good. We could go on and on. Helen, do you want to stop? No. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.